glad to see so many faces in Sunday school this morning. There are some weeks where you need a little bit more congregational help with the discussion. So, you know, it's good to have quite a few people here. Uh, Today we are doing Exodus chapters 19 and 20, continuing on in our summer series through Exodus. Uh, We're going to begin by reading those, uh, but before we do, let me open in prayer. O gracious Lord, our God, we remember the words uh, of the writer to the Hebrews, uh, that we do not come to what may be touched, uh, to a mountain and to burning flame and to a voice that made the hearers tremble, but we come to uh, a kingdom uh, that cannot be shaken. We come to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the saints arrayed in heaven. Uh, We come to a God who is a consuming fire. Cause us to remember these things today as we Uh, Touch on holy ground as we read your word. Speak to us by your spirit. Uh, Reveal your son to us. As we speak of the law, make us to think of your gospel. Uh, Help us to see the way that your law reveals our sin and our need for Christ. Help us to know the way that you restrain sin. Uh, Help us to know the way that you use it as a guide for us. Uh, And you shepherd us by your word and by your moral law and by revealing yourself. Help us, O Lord to know these things, to rejoice in them, and to follow you where you lead your people. We pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. We are today in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. We're not going to read all of chapter 20. We are going to end at the end of verse 21. Uh, That uh, is a nice, tidy little section, and 22 will begin a larger, more extended section uh, beginning next week. So I need Four readers, four volunteers to read for us this morning, if I could get some hands, please. Anyone? Landon, thank you. I'm going to give you Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 9a. So you'll see there, there's a, there's a paragraph division in our English Bibles in the middle of the verse. Uh, read to the end of that paragraph. And somebody else could pick up on the next paragraph, 9b. Pat, could you take that uh, through the end of the chapter, through verse 15 of chapter 19? And then we're going to split uh, God's uh, table of the law, God's law, into the two tables, verses 1 through 11, and then verses 12 through 21. Could I get somebody to read verses 1 through 11, please? Mike, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 20, and somebody else, chapters 12 through, sorry, chapters, verses 12 through 21. Tim. Uh, Chapter 20, verses 12 through 21. All right, uh, we're going to get started. Chapter 19, please. Moses came and called the elders of the people 
Thank you. I think um, in the book of Exodus, there are, uh, we can think of it almost like a, like a range of mountains, uh, several different mountains all together, and each one has a pinnacle. Uh, but all together, they sort of form the book. And it's, it's hard to put our finger on where exactly the highest pinnacle is in the book of Exodus, because it seems like we're always coming up uh, to another peak. And then, and over that peak, we see another one that, that might look a little bit higher than that still. There, there are, I think, a few different peaks in the book of Exodus. We've covered a few of them already. Uh, now, you might differ with my opinion on this, but, but I think um, a lot of these peaks have to do with God revealing himself. So one of them is in chapter 3, where God shows up to, uh, to Moses in the burning bush, and he reveals his name. He says, this is who I am. Uh, I am the God who is. I am Yahweh. Uh, another similar pinnacle um, is the one in chapter 40. Uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 34, uh, following the golden calf where the Lord shows up again. And Moses says, how will I know that you will be with us and, uh, and reveal your glory to me? And, and the Lord says, well, I, I can't reveal my glory, but he does come down and he again proclaims his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness and, and all those things. And he goes on, and it's this amazing pinnacle that you look at that and you just have to sort of stop uh, and worship at that point. Another pinnacle uh, or, or sort of sets of pinnacles has to do with the Lord drawing his people to himself. One of those, I think, is, uh, is chapter 12, uh, the Passover, uh, where the Lord is uh, proclaiming, this is going to be your perpetual remembrance of the way that I've redeemed you. One of those comes in the end of the book, in, in chapter 40, where the tabernacle is completed and the Spirit of God, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, it's called, uh, dwells in the tabernacle among the people. Another one, I think, is right here. It has to do with God drawing his people to himself. This is uh, one of my favorite passages in, in Exodus, these verses uh, 3 through 6, where God says, You have seen the way that I have drawn you to myself I carried you like, uh, like on eagle's wings. It's this, it's this beautiful picture that we have. Uh, but when we understand uh, the way that this pinnacle fits into the larger context of what God is doing here, it helps us to put into perspective uh, this big category that we think of, of the law of God. Now, this, uh, this uh, pinnacle that we're looking at uh, in chapter 19, this really begins a very large section of the Pentateuch. Uh, what the Israelites are doing at the foot of Sinai, they will continue to do all the way through Numbers chapter 10. Uh, through the rest of Exodus, God's going to give them uh, some of his laws. We'll see them recorded in Exodus. And then it'll be all about the tabernacle, God dwelling with his people. And then Leviticus picks up, the people are still at the foot of Sinai, and God is giving them more laws and more laws and more laws. And, and probably all of this law giving happened while the people are erecting and constructing the tabernacle. There's a long period of time that they're working on these things. Uh, and then uh, Numbers uh, also picks up, still at the base of Sinai, and, and numbering the people and, and getting ready to set out into the wilderness. Uh, but a lot of what happens, uh, and in fact, when you get to the wilderness wanderings, 
until the, you probably remember the basic story, they, they get to the promised land, they send out the spies, they look at the land, they come back, they say, oh, there are giants there, and the Lord says, no, you're going back into the wilderness. That's very quick. Oh, it's so quick. The narrative there just moves from they set out, and they went, and they spied, and the Lord sent them back into the wilderness, and there's some, uh, there's some rebellion that happens there, but it's, it's so quick, but it settles in, the, the narrative, and, and all of the, a, a large chunk of the Pentateuch settles in in what the Lord is doing and what he's saying to his people at the base of Mount Sinai. So it's important. What we see, I think, in this first section uh, of, uh, of chapter 19 is almost like a preamble to all of those things uh, that are to come. So it, it helps us to understand how should we think of the law? What role does it play in the life of God's worshipers? How should we interpret it? Uh, so I think here's a way that we could think about uh, what we've seen today, that, that there are sections that we've seen of God's calling his people, uh, God calling his people to be consecrated, and then his communication with his people. So there's a calling, there's a consecration, uh, there's a, a communication. It begins with this calling, this preamble, and we're going to look at that. And, and the Lord is setting the framework, the groundwork for how his people should think about all the things that he's going to tell them. Uh, and then between that calling uh, and the communication, there is this consecration, that, that the people don't just, okay, let's go and hear from the Lord, here we are. Uh, but there is this three-day period where, uh, through Moses, the Lord basically says, you need to take this very seriously. Uh, we have some things to talk about. Maybe you've you probably had uh, family meetings in your household. And you say, tonight at 7, we're going to sit around the dinner table and we're going to think about these things. And, and get yourself ready. Uh, you know, it might be something serious happening in the home. Uh, the Lord sort of does that in this consecration period. He says, you need to prepare. Uh, you need to come near, but you need to be in the right frame of mind. And, and we'll look at that. And then he begins this uh, communication. Uh, now, the, the Ten Commandments that we have, and we'll, we'll look a little bit about that, um, have sometimes been called a summary of the rest of the law. Uh, that you can take the principles that are found in the Ten Commandments, how the Lord, you know, we, we split them as we read them today into what are commonly called the two tables. There's a table of the law that has to deal with how the people interact with their God. So, namely, no other gods before me. Uh, you shouldn't uh, take my name in vain. Uh, you shouldn't make other idols. You should keep the Sabbath day holy. Those were out of order, sorry. Um, so those are the four. That's how you deal with the Lord. And then all those other ones, how you deal with those who are around you. This is why when, when folks came to Jesus in the New Testament and they said, oh, which is, uh, they were testing him, they said, which is the most important commandment? He basically gave them two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He was, he was summarizing those two tables of the law. So there's responsibility to your God. There's responsibility to your neighbor. And lots of people have said that what we see through the rest of, uh, of the, the Pentateuch, through the law of God that he's giving, really, it plays out. It's, it's a commentary almost. It's an expansion of, of these two things. Think about how you deal with the Lord. Think about how you deal with people. But, but it's a calling, and it's also uh, revealing um, this Lord with whom we have to deal. Now, as I was preparing to, to talk about this, I, I came across a few commentators and they use this phrase to talk about the law of God that I, I think we sometimes miss. Uh, they called it a gift of the Lord. They called it a gift of God's grace, actually. And sometimes when we think of the law, we don't think of grace. We, we tend to think of them in separate terms. Uh, we take everything that fits under this category of law, and we say, well, that's law, and then everything else is gospel, good news, 
but really, what these commentators I, I found, and, and I'll see what you think about this, they call the law a gift of God's grace. Now, what do you think about that? Is, is the law, uh, as we see it in the Ten Commandments, and then as you think about sort of larger, we're, we're sort of taking a step back today. As you think about it in the larger scale, is, is the law that the Lord gives to his people, is it a gift or is it a burden? Is it, is it a mix of the two? How would you categorize it? W- would you agree with this, uh, this estimation that the law is a gift of God's grace? Yes or no, and why? Rob, why? Okay. Okay. So it, it is a gift in the sense that he is making known who he is. And God's revelation is, is always a gift. It's not something that we can do for ourselves. We need him to do it for us, and, it, and it's sort of a preparation. It, it's showing them the way to come before him. Right. He is the blessing. And, and that's the, uh, you know, when you get to the uh, sort of the end of the law period, uh, Numbers chapter 6, that's the blessing we see. Uh, the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you. That's the ironic blessing, that, that you actually have uh, the, the Lord's presence. His face is turned to you, and, and he keeps you, and he blesses you. He is the blessing, Absolutely. What else? Do you agree with that, Jay? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I've I've done it, and it doesn't go well for me. When it... <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so some of it depends on perspective. Um, as you're saying, that the parents with children with disabilities, uh, they might not see the gift that it is at first, but then later they'll, they'll recognize how they've been changed by it, how they've been shaped by that experience. And it's the same thing uh, for Israel. They become a different people than the world around them. And what a blessing that the Lord would, would do that for his people. Um, you know, they'll, they'll say, um, I think it's in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses tells the people before they go into the land, uh, that they are special because they have the law of God. They're different from all the nations around them. And who is the Lord who has given all of these laws and all of these commandments to show his people how to walk after him? There's something special about that, and they're changed through those things. What else? Is it a, is it a burden? I mean, Paul talks about it as a burden in the New Testament. He talks about it in Galatians. He says, you know, why are you tying a burden on the people. He's speaking to Judaizers now. This is the distinction we need to keep in mind. Uh, Those who said, well, if you're going to be saved, you need to keep every aspect of the the Jewish law and all these things, and circumcision uh, especially. And and Paul says, why are you trying to to tie in a burden that neither we nor our our fathers could bear? Cynthia was going to have a comment, and then we'll get to Bill. Yeah. Yeah, there is a sense that that burden is a blessing, right? Um, that, that we see part of what the law does is it exposes our sin. 
uh, it shows us how far we fall away from God's standard of perfection. That if we're going to be in his presence, if we're going to have the, the blessing of knowing who he is, uh, he will not let anything in his presence that is not holy. It will be burned up. Uh, that's, you know, I, I was praying this morning from Hebrews chapter 12. That's what it says. He's a consuming fire. Uh, and, but it's a blessing to draw near to this one who consumes, and anything that is not holy is, is burned up. Thank you. Bill, you were going to add to that. Yeah, so, so we're going through the trials of, of seeing those things before we can understand the salvation that the Lord has. And, and we understand his grace a little bit more when we, when we understand the weight of the law. Good. Last comment from Landon, then we're, we're going to move on to this. Absolutely. And you, you beat me to the punch. So, I, so we've got those three uses later. We, I think we've spoken of at least, at least one of them. We spoke of the law as a mirror. So, so our, our Reformed heritage, as Landon is remi- reminding us, uh, the Reformers spoke of the law in, in three different terms. One, it's a mirror. Uh, it shows us our sin. You don't notice how far your hair uh, is out of whack until you look in the mirror in the morning and then you say, ooh, bedhead. Uh, so the law is like a mirror. It shows us our need. It shows us our sin. Uh, second, it's like a curb. Uh, it, it's a threat of punishment. And so both for the believer and the unbeliever, it is God's very direct uh, message that he will not tolerate certain things. And, and that is a curb. Even in, in larger society, you think of uh, you know, the, this uh, push against many uh, courts used to have the, the Ten Commandments on the wall. You didn't have to be a, a believer for those to be applicable to you, but, but it was this understanding of, of uh, God's law that, that there should be a certain curb on things that are morally reprehensible uh, in society. Curb. Curb. What did you hear? Oh, no, 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 no. Curb. Buh, 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 buh. With a B on the end. Yes, it's a curb. Uh, to, to restrain, uh, and then it's also, and this is specifically for the believer, it is a guide. It is a guide in the way that it is not a guide for the unbeliever. Uh, that's guide, with a D at the end. Uh, not a guy, but a guide. Um, so it is a guide for the believer in the sense that it is only the believer who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is able in any sense to, to keep some of the law. It's not how we gain our salvation, but it's a response to the salvation the Lord has worked, and it comes through the work of the Holy Spirit in the Holy Spirit in the believer. That he then takes the law, and you think about some of the promises in the Old Testament, uh, I will no longer have a law written on tablets, but I'll, I'll write it on your heart. That's a promise. That's a gospel promise for the believer. The law written on your heart. Uh, heartfelt obedience. Not that we go to the law and we say, oh, I've, I've got all these things that I have to do, and if I don't, uh, I'm, I'm going to be damned to hell, and all, the, you know, all these other things. Uh, no, it's now this, this joyous thing that we, we get to do. In the New Testament, it talks about the law as the law of liberty. And we go back and forth. Is, well, well uh, is Paul talking about the same law there, or is he talking about a different kind of law? 
Uh, and maybe there's uh, some, some room for debate. I, I think he's talking about the same law, but the law written on the heart is the Holy Spirit works in the believer. It becomes not the burden, but the law of liberty. Because it's not the way that we gain salvation, it's the way that we express salvation. Let's take a look at that, especially in, uh, in chapter 19. Uh, notice these, uh, these verses, 3 through 6. Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, you notice those brackets in verse 3 and 6. The Lord says, this is what you shall speak, and then he gives them the words, and he says, this is what you shall speak. Uh, it's, it's guarded on each side. Uh, there's a curb on each side as to the words that Moses is supposed to speak to the people, and they are this. You've seen what I've done. Notice that that, that first section is not conditional. It is past tense. The Lord is speaking to these people, and he says, I have brought you to myself, period, full stop. Now, therefore, if, now this is where it gets uh, a little tricky because some people will look at this and they'll say, well, uh, it seems like uh, God is laying on them conditions of salvation. <clears throat> there are always conditions to a covenant. Now, when you look in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, there are conditions to the covenant. There are even conditions in the New Covenant. Faith and repentance. Those are conditions. Those are things that the Holy Spirit works in us. Uh, he works those conditions in us by his Holy Spirit, uh, but there are conditions to the covenant. Now, now what are the terms of uh, these conditions? Is salvation... Now, probably need to take a step back there. The Lord is speaking, and I think this is a valuable to us in the sense that um, he is not speaking of spiritual salvation. Okay? We need to understand the way that the New and the Old Testament speak about these things. Um, that when he brings the people out, uh, he doesn't say, I have spiritually and eternally saved every single one of you. We see that when we look uh, in, in, um, in Paul, in Romans. Uh, he says unequivocally, faith or salvation is always by faith. Uh, and, and we understand that not everyone from Israel was spiritually and eternally saved. Not all those from Israel are saved, he'll say. And, and so uh, we, we understand sort of that distinction. There's the, uh, the visible church and the invisible church. Rob, you're going to add to that or question that? No. Right. It's about being a kingdom. Uh, and it begins with a statement that the, the Lord has already done this. The, the physical salvation, the the local salvation has already happened. Now, the reason this is valuable to us is that it sets up uh, a paradigm that spiritually the, the Lord works in this way with his people uh, in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament. Yes? Yeah. Right, so, so the Old Testament uses salvation in lots of different ways, and we just need to be, 
we need to be sure the way that we're looking at it and the way that we're seeing it. Now, the Lord does use the word redeemed. You've seen the way that I redeemed you to myself. Uh, And it begins and it says, this is what I have done, period, full stop. Now, therefore, if. He sets up this kingdom, he makes them his people, and he says, uh, the rest of this is, is how you express the people that you are. There is a conditionality there, isn't there? If you will keep my law, uh, if you will keep these commandments, you will be to me a holy people. You'll be to me a, a particular people. Now, now, what is it that he's saying there? What is on the line? He says, I think, three things uh, that, uh, that they will be. Can you see them there in verse 5? What are they and, and what do they mean? What's the first one? Treasured possession. Okay. What is, what is a treasured possession? Something valuable. Uh, I like the, uh, who's got the King James on this one? What's, what's the word for treasured? Peculiar? Yeah, something like peculiar, uh, which is not the way that we use peculiar anymore. Uh, we use peculiar in the sense of strange or weird. Uh, that's not how it was meant. Uh, it was treasured. Uh, this phrase only shows up one other time in the Old Testament. It shows up uh, on the lips of David. Uh, he is preparing. Um, let me see if I can grab it here quickly. Not everybody has to turn there. First Chronicles uh, chapter 29, uh, verse 3. David is about to die, and his son is being established as king. And David, even though he's not allowed... Uh, to make the temple or to to erect the temple, he's beginning to make preparations for it. This is what it says, uh, chapter 29, um, beginning in verse 2. So, this is David, so I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antinomy, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Verse 3, moreover, in addition, in addition to all that I provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver. Because of my devotion to the house of my God, I gave it to the house of my God. David says, I gathered all the gold and all the silver, and oh, by the way, I've got some special stuff. I've got my own stash. Some people have talked about it in the sense of crown jewels. The the queen has has all the jewels in the Tower of London, but then there are the crown jewels. They're the special ones. They're they're the ones that are set apart. This is what the Lord says. He says, all the earth is mine. It all belongs to me anyway. It's not like I have you and some other God has something else, but you'll be my special. Uh, you'll be my precious, my treasured possession. Uh, and so that's what he says. That, that's part of what's on the line there, that, that Israel will be his special people. Now, do they continue as his special people? This is, this is a thornier subject uh, that, that we begin to get into. Think about the parables that Jesus tells um, in... Oh, sorry. Let me take, take a step back. Let's look at the rest of these, and then we're going we're to think about that. Uh, what else does the Lord say that they are going to be? So they're going to be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? They worship God, okay. They make sacrifice. They talk directly to God. Aha, let's put them all together. So they do the worship, they talk to God, and they talk to God on behalf of the people. They are an, an intermediary. Right. Right. 
And, and this, so notice, Exodus began, the Lord showed up and spoke to Moses in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, didn't he? Uh, I, I remember the covenant that I made with Abraham, their father, uh, and I'm going to bring them out, and I'm going to fulfill all these promises. There, there were three promises there. I'm going to give you a nation, you'll, you'll be the father of many. I'm going to give you a place, I'm going to put you in the land, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through your family. But there's supposed to be this intermediary uh, aspect to, to who Israel is, God's chosen people, his treasured possession, his intermediary, to, to speak uh, on behalf of the Lord to all the nations of the earth and to bring all the nations of the earth closer to, to this God who exists. So that's the second thing. And, and what's the last one? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Becky. What are you going to add to that? Yeah, that we are, you know, the Lord could just show up. He could just say, hey, uh, here I am. And he could gather all of his people, but he has chosen not to. He's chosen to be with us as we go, but he says, go into all the earth, all the earth and, and make disciples of all nations, teaching, baptizing, uh, and all these other things, and I'm going to be with you. But he sends us. And he sends us as the intermediaries. Uh, and in fact, you see this same language on the lips of Paul and the other apostles in the New Testament that that the believers now are, are the priesthood. Uh, Paul, I'm sorry, I think it's Peter speaks of that, um, a, a holy priesthood. Um, I think, I'm, I'm getting, I think it's Peter. Uh, and Alicia is shaking her head, so I'm going to go with Alicia on that. Um, now, what's the third thing? What is the third thing that is on the line with this conditionality here? A holy nation. Now, what does that have to do with anything there, Bill? What, what does it mean for the people to be a holy nation? Good? Yeah? Okay. Set apart? Different? Distinct? We're going to have a whole sermon on this later, so just hang tight. Um, <laughs> oh, oh. No, no, no. Hold on. Wait for it. Be on the edge of your seat. Yeah, Ronnie. What, what does it mean for them to be holy, a, a set-apart nation? Yeah. Yeah, that they are set apart. And we'll see this refrain over and over again in, um, in Leviticus especially. The Lord says, I, the Lord your God, am holy. Therefore, you must be holy. Uh, and it's an aspect of reflecting who he is. And they're really all tied together. Uh, it's not as though they are three separate things. They're one thing. And that one thing is that they are uh, a kingdom of priests, a treasured possession, and a holy nation. And all those are supposed to work together. Uh, and they will be a kingdom of priests when they are the, this treasured possession that, uh, that is distinct from the world. You can't be a kingdom of priests. Uh, you can't be sort of the intermediary if you're just like the rest. There's, you know, all these things are tied together. Now, uh, this question, does, uh, does Israel continue as these things? Um, Oh, where is it? Uh, 
That's not the one I was looking for. So you remember in the New Testament, I've, I've got Matthew. Uh, you could probably find it in a different um, gospel, in the one that has a particular line that I'm looking for. You remember that Jesus comes into the temple, uh, and it's the, the week uh, of his passion, of his, uh, of his crucifixion, uh, and people are testing him. And he, uh, in turn, begins to tell them some things that they don't like. One of the things that he tells them that they don't like is this parable of the tenants. And he uses this metaphor that shows up in Isaiah uh, and in other important places in the Old Testament that, uh, that Israel is this field of the Lord, this, uh, this olive orchard, uh, and, and this, uh, this great planting of the Lord. And, and the Lord has established them, and he's given them every blessing, uh, and the purpose of which was to receive the fruits of uh, the kingdom that he had planted. And, uh, and so he tells this parable, and the parable goes that you know, the, the master of the vineyard sends one of his servants representing the prophets, uh, to, to gather the fruits of the vineyard. And the people say, nope, uh-uh. we're not giving them to you. In fact, we're going, to, we're going to beat that servant and cast him out of the vineyard. And on and on and on. And, and he sends several servants. And finally, the master of the vineyard says, I'm going to send my son, because even though they didn't respect my servants, they're going to respect my son. And what do they do? They take the son. They say, here is the heir. Let's kill him, and the vineyard will be ours. And they do, and they kill him, and they, they cast him out of the vineyard. And, and Jesus turns the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it's this, this irony. They don't even understand the things that he's saying to them. He says, what is the, the master of the vineyard going to do with those men? And they say, he's going to take those miserable wretches, and he's going to throw them out of his kingdom, and he's going to gather people that will produce its fruits. He's going to take that vineyard and give it to somebody else. This is what was on the line. They were meant to be this kingdom of priests. They were meant to be this holy nation set apart, uh, and they did not follow the Lord with all their heart. And so he, he removes them, and, and not all of those who are of Israel, that is, born of Israel, are of Israel because they aren't, they aren't faithful to what the Lord has called them to. And yet you see that, that what the Lord has done uh, in the beginning was that he redeemed them. He gathered them to himself, and then he gave them the law, and he said, now this is how you live it out. Now, the difference uh, that we see, uh, because we could, we could come to despair here, we could turn what is meant to be a gift of grace into something that is, uh, again, a burden that we're not able to bear. And to say, well, God saves you, and then he also gives you his law, and if you don't keep it, then you're going to be kicked out of the kingdom. Wrong. Uh, because remember these promises of the Lord, that he takes this paradigm and, and he increases it in a sense. He no longer just has the law written on tablets of stone, but he writes it on our hearts. And he himself maintains our faithfulness. He himself maintains uh, the fact that his people will endure uh, to the end of the ages because he has called them to himself. He has chosen them, uh, and he has redeemed them, period, and now he works in us. Think of Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So there, there is this conditionality, but he comes alongside and he says, well, there is law, but there's also gospel. There's gospel in the sense that the Lord is, is working these things. And, and we understand this when we see the way God is working in the Old Testament. Even the narrative of Israel. <clears throat> you, know, you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, they were all baptized into Moses. They all passed through the waters. They, they were all, uh, all these other things. And all these things were written down so that we would know not to uh, desire evil as they did. And many were... Uh, were killed and, and their bodies were, that's Hebrews, 
their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So I'm conflating those two texts there, 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews chapter 4. But you understand the way that the Lord is, is working here, and it causes us to see uh, this gift of grace that, that for those who are believers, uh, it becomes a guide. God's law becomes a guide in the way that it could never have been a guide to those who do not have the Holy Spirit, because he's actually working these things in us. Rob, you're going to add to that. Right. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so we see this paradigm, and it's worked out individually in all of us. Thank you, Rob. Jay. <clears throat> Because they're like us. Because they're like us. Yeah. But but just that dramatic thing. God wants us to remember. Yeah. He saw. He saw what I did. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you mm-hmm. you know, remember and do. Yeah. Yeah. And and that really is this foundation, this paradigm that sets up how we need to understand the rest of the law, both the way that it was intended for Israel and the way that it shows up now in our individual lives. Uh, is the law something that we keep to gain salvation? No. It's the response. It's the way that we live it out. And for those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, this is something that is, that is possible, not perfectly possible because the stain of sin still remains, but it is a gift of God's grace to show us what he commands and, and desires of his people. This is a good thing. Uh, you know, Paul talks about that in, in Romans. Now, I keep quoting Paul because he deals an awful lot with the law and with the gospel. But he says the law is good if you use it lawfully. The problem that, uh, you know, sometimes we think, well, um, the, we live under grace and not under the law. And so we don't need it. We, we sort of cast aside. That's Old Testament. Old Testament was law. New Testament is gospel. And so they have nothing to do with one another. And Paul says, it's good. Not it was good, but it is good. If you use it lawfully, and here's one of the ways Paul says in that, in that passage, uh, you know, I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. It shows us our sin. That's a good thing for believers, that, that's not the way that we gain salvation, but we say, well, I'm, I'm part of God's people. How am, I, how am I supposed to live? Well, you go to what he has revealed. Becky. And in a sense, what is the grace Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. You, you need to have the bad news to understand the good news. 
You need to see your sin in order to understand God's salvation. The Holy Spirit will come, Jesus says in John 16. He will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. All three of those things are good things. They're all the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And, and if, we, if we try to have one without the other, we miss the whole thing. Absolutely. Great, great. Um, well, that took up most of the class, <laughs> as usual. Um, let's think about this consecration, um, because if this is a, if this is a paradigm, um, this has something to say to us as well, doesn't it? Why does the Lord say that you need to have this period of consecration, you need to wash your clothes and make sure that you don't have marital relations? Make sure, you know, he says, don't go near a woman. Uh, we know what that means. It's a euphemism. Uh, what is going on here? Are, is this sort of this puritanical view of sex, that sex itself is bad? Uh, or is it this idea that maybe, uh, you know, you've got to wash your clothes. God is some sort of germaphobe, that he, he can't be near uh, the dirt of the earth. What's going on here? Why does the Lord do this? And, and does it, how does it, or does it, uh, translate to the way that we come before the Lord now? What do you think? Steve looks like he wants to say something. <laughs> you looked right at my eyes. No, 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 you don't have to answer. That's fine. I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name already. Ralph. Yeah, yeah, that everything else has to be subservient to that primary relationship. Yep, Linda. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. Yeah, so we, we do see that, certainly. Bill, did you want to add to that? Okay. Something important is coming after this. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that we shouldn't casually go into God's presence. Mm-hmm. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Tremble at my word. Right. So I think this is part of that. Yeah, and, and he's setting up this idea of taking God very seriously. 
Uh, now, it wasn't that Sinai was just some special place. Um, it, it wasn't special because it was special. It was special because, because God made it special. Now, we have a problem with this uh, in, in sort of the New Testament times. You know, up to um, you know, about the first century, uh, God chose, uh, you know, from, from the time of now when he's with Israel to, to the, the time of the first century when the temple was decimated and, and Paul, as we'll see later today in 1 Corinthians, says, you are the temple. Uh, God chose to make his name known and to dwell in a particular place. Not because he was bound to it, uh, but because he, he decided to reveal himself in that way. Uh, it, was, it was part of his grace and his gift, but, but to draw the people to understanding that there is sacred and, and there is secular. Uh, we, we sometimes tear that down. We say, no, 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 we're, we're the New Testament church and, and everything is sacred. Well, well, think about this idea of, of this uh, fourth commandment. You shall set aside one day and that shall be holy for you. Now, th- this is part of, of what we normally call the moral law. We generally take the Ten Commandments. In fact, if you read in our uh, Westminster, it, it says, wherein is the moral law summarily comprehended? Well, it's summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. These are moral things. This is, this is not, uh, you know, we, we seem to think uh, for some reason, well, uh, all of them are binding except maybe this fourth commandment about having this one day that is different. Uh, but the Lord says, no, 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 even in even the establishment of your week, there should be a sacred and a secular. Not that everything else is bad, not that the work that you do throughout the rest of your week and those other six days, not that, that that's profane, um, but it, it's not special. And so you, you need to have that day that you set aside. It's the same sort of thing that he calls the people and he says, you're going to come into my presence. Uh, it's not that, that the dirt on your clothes is uh, necessarily contaminated, uh, but you need to do things differently. It's, it's not that Sex with your spouse is bad, but you need to prepare yourselves differently. Paul has the same idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about the marriage relationship between a man and a wife, and he says, look, don't, don't hold back from one another. The man is not allowed to refuse his wife. The wife is not allowed to refuse her, her husband, except for a time. And do you know why? You may devote yourself to prayer. There is this, this sacredness, now, that there are some things that, that couples should be doing together, setting apart time that would otherwise be used for very good things, um, but normal things, and saying, let's stop and consider the, the fact that there is something higher going on here. I want you to think about that with the fourth commandment. Uh, this is one of the, you know, we're, we're fine with all these other ones. We, well, of course, we don't covet, we don't, uh, you know. And some of us, uh, some of the world will look at uh, us reform types and say, you, you put too much emphasis on the Lord's Day, on, on this fourth commandment thing. I don't think so. Uh, I, I think we, we can miss, it's the fifth. Oh, I missed it the whole time. I'm sorry. Great, thank you. Uh, you know, say, well, you, you've missed this, this sort of thing. Um, now you've thrown me off. It depends on how you number them. It depends on how you number them, yeah. Um, See, Chris is saying five. <laughs> Four or five, no matter how you count them. So it, there actually is a debate in the church whether, whether you count this first one, I am the Lord your God, uh, you shall have no other gods before. Is that a commandment or is that a preamble? Uh, so there, there's a little bit of a debate. Uh, so it, I'm right either way. 
but I think, regardless, here's a place where, where we need to say, you know, let, let's, look, let's let God's law be God's law and be a, a means of grace to us and show us the way that we're to worship him. And, and what does that mean? What are the things... I'm not going to answer this for you. Uh, you know, to, to go beyond is, is to get into the realm of legalism. And I don't want to do that. Uh, but consider in, in your home, in your family, what does the Sabbath day look like? How is it different? How do you keep it holy? How do you celebrate the Sabbath? Not just wall it off and say, well, this is, this is not good and we don't do these things on this day. But how do you, how do you celebrate the Sabbath? Jay, you're going to add to that? I think I'm going to give you the last comment and then we're going to... Oh, me too. No pressure. Absolutely. Um, so I said I was going to give you the last comment. I'm not. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to let Hebrews have the last comment. No, it was good, Jay. Oh, it was good, Jay. Way, way to go. Um, but it, it can't compare to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. This is, this is speaking of New Testament worship, Okay. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and following. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking." For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Pretty soon we're going to be doing that together. Uh, let's pray the Lord would give us the grace to uh, offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, you are the one who uh, removes the things that have been made so that those things that remain uh, cannot be shaken. You are the one who gives us this kingdom that can't be shaken. Uh, would you uh, stir us up by your spirit?
to give us true and acceptable worship to you. Prepare our hearts in this time before we come into your presence uh, through the corporate worship of your church. Meet us in that worship. Prepare us for that worship. Set our hearts on Christ in that worship. And cause us to rejoice in you and to be filled with your spirit unto endurance and eternal life. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, folks.